Well, our text here in chapter 4 brings us to a major point of transition in our study in the book of Ephesians. And you can tell that it's a point of transition uh, because it begins, verse 1 does, with that um, uh, significant and deeply profound theological word, therefore. I've said before many times that whenever we come to that word, we always have to ask that old question, what is the therefore, therefore? And it is there to tie together, obviously, what Paul has already taught in chapters 1 through 3 with what he's about to teach now in chapters 4 through 6. As we've seen in our study already, the first three chapters of Ephesians are full of rich spiritual truth. They contain profound theological information. Uh, There is rich treasure to be found in chapters 1 through 3. Now, since it's been a a month, over a month, since we uh, looked at uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians, think with me again, just for a few moments, about what we saw there. Remember? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God has predestined us to adoption as sons. We saw that in Christ and in Christ alone, we have the forgiveness of our sins. We saw that God works all things after the counsel of His own will, that we've been sealed in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, that God made us alive, made us new creatures when we were yet spiritually dead, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. That God has, in His grace, expanded the scope of salvation beyond the Jews to include the Gentiles. And we saw we're thankful for that because that includes us as well. We saw that He's called us to be citizens in His kingdom, children in His family, and members of His church. And we've seen because of all this, we have great boldness and direct access to His throne of grace in prayer. What rich, profound spiritual truths in the very next word. When Paul concludes all of that rich teaching, the very next word is therefore. And his point is this, therefore, since all these things are true, And since God has saved you with such great grace, and since God has given you such a great salvation, then it ought to make a difference in your life. You see, there's always to be a connection between doctrine and life, between what we believe and how we live. Your understanding of your identity in Christ ought to make an impact on the way you live your life for Christ. You see, conversion does make us new creatures. And God expects us to live like it. He expects us to live like the new people He has made us to be in Christ. He expects His desires to become our desires. His standards to become our desires. Or standards. His purposes to become our purposes. His will to become our will. 
know, there are, there are lots of Christians in, in many churches who belittle the study of doctrine. They think we ought not waste time trying to articulate profound theological truths, but instead focus on the, on the practical matters of the Christian life. But that's a fatal mistake. You can't separate doctrine from life. You are what you believe. Your life will be a reflection of what you acknowledge to be true. You see, trying to live the, the Christian life without a theological foundation is like trying to, to steer a boat with no rudder. And so the word therefore here in our text is a point of transition between your position in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, to your walk with Christ in chapters 4 through 6. It is a transition from doctrine to duty, from principle to practice. That's the way God has designed the book of Ephesians as he through the Holy Spirit, led the Apostle Paul to write these words. Theology first, practice later. Doctrine that leads to life. Reminds me really of, of the book of Romans that Carrie's been teaching through in Sunday school. How the first 11 chapters are profoundly theological and give us an enormous amount of theological truth and then when you come to chapter 12, the very first word in chapter 12, verse 1 is what? Is therefore. Therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book, is all about living the Christian life based upon what he taught in the first 11 chapters. You see, right doctrine leads to right living. Turn that around and you get the opposite, don't you? Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. You can't live a life pleasing to God without knowing true biblical doctrine. Because that is what shows you who God is, what God is like, and what God expects from His people. That's why our ministry here at North Point is based so much on teaching. That is who we are. And that is what we do because we believe that to be true. That right teaching lives, leads to right living. So many of you have told me that you're here at this church for one reason. And that's because of the teaching that you receive. And that reflects our philosophy of ministry. A basic principle of our Ministry is that the Bible is the agent of change. And if any of us are going to be changed, it has to be through the work of the Holy Spirit applying the truth of God's Word to our hearts. And so we unabashedly, unashamedly, every Lord's Day, open up His Word to find what it says about who He is and then how He expects us to live. Well, that leads us to our text. To what follows after the word therefore. There's two things I want to bring uh, to you from these three verses this morning. And both of them deal with what Paul calls in our text 
a worthy life. First, we find in the text an admonition to live a worthy life. Now, it's from verse 1 that we find another indication that this is one of Paul's, what we call, prison epistles. Uh, he calls himself here the prisoner of the Lord. And, and this is one of the epistles Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. And one of the things that the prison epistles just in general show me about the Apostle Paul is his heart for believers, his heart for the church. Because here Paul was, he was under house arrest, but here he was in a very difficult situation, separated from the people to whom he administered, but even though he was separated physically, he wasn't separated in his heart. He's still concerned about them, wanting to have a ministry to them. And so he writes them these letters from prison. And so now Paul here, as a prisoner of the Lord, writes to this church in Ephesus. And Paul gives them here an admonition. It's an urgent admonition. And we can tell it's urgent in verse 1 because he says to them, I implore you. To, to implore means to beg, to urge, or to beseech, or to plead. You see, this isn't just an encouragement that Paul is about to give these believers. This is a, a strong admonition, an urging, a pleading uh, to gospel faithfulness and to gospel obedience. See, that is one of our responsibilities as pastors of God's people. We're not just to tell you what to do. We're to urge you to do it. We're not just to give you information about what God says. But we're to plead with you to, to believe it. And to do it. And, and to live by it. There is to be some passion, some urgency, some pleading as the gospel message is presented. And that's what Paul's doing here. He says, I implore you. Uh, this is something important. Now, what Paul is about to tell them is not optional. It's not something they can choose to do or not to do. This is something that is to be a priority to them as he implores them to do it. Well, what is it that he implores them to do? He implores them in verse 1. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called he implores them to live a worthy life now if something has worth then it has value and we always determine the value of something against the value of something else the value of the way that you live for Christ, you see, is always gauged against the value of the salvation you have in Christ. And that's the point that Paul is making to you. He, he spent three chapters talking about the value of your salvation, the wonder of it, the glory of it, the splendor of it, the fact that your salvation is all of grace, that it's a marvelous gift that God has bestowed upon you. And he says, 
that this salvation is yours because God has called you to it. And so now in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Now you live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have received. You live a life. Make sure you live a life that reflects the value of your salvation that God has given to you in Christ. You see, that's, that's the whole point, isn't it? Folks, you have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God set his love upon you before you even existed. God predestined you that you would be adopted into his family and be his sons and daughters. God has caused you to be born again, to know him in a personal way. God has saved you by his grace. Do you see how much value that places on your salvation? Now, if, if it was something you had done, if your salvation was something you had accomplished, something you had earned, it wouldn't have nearly the same value. Because God has called you out of darkness into light, by His marvelous grace, your salvation is of inestimable value. And Paul says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now again, that gets at the very heart of our motivation to live the Christian life, doesn't it? We don't live the Christian life so that God will love us. We live it because He does love us. We don't live in obedience to God's word hoping that God will save us, but we live it knowing that He has saved us. And we live it in response to what God has done in our hearts and in our lives. And so Paul gives us this earnest appeal. He implores us to walk in a manner, to live in a way that reflects the value of the salvation that we have in Christ. And then second, he gives us some of the characteristics of this worthy life. He doesn't leave us to wonder, to scratch our heads and kind of try to decide, well, what, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling with which we've been called? And in fact, he gives us in our text five different qualities that identify what that life looks like. And as I go through these five things briefly this morning, they'll kind of give you a checklist to see where you are in living a life that is worthy of the calling with you, which you've been called. I had to deal with it myself. You know, but before I get up here and, and address it to you, over there, God addresses it to me. And if that doesn't happen, folks, we're in real trouble here. So I had to kind of go through this checklist myself this week and find, you know, I got all the work to do. Maybe you'll find the same thing. What are these traits? First one he lists in verse 2 is humility. With all humility, he said. Humility, I think, is one of the most basic and fundamental of Christian traits 
It is, I think, the Christian trait that draws us closest to the heart of Jesus. The Bible says that uh, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and goes on to say he humbled himself, humbled himself now to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's been said that humility is putting God first, others second, and ourselves third. And that's certainly what Jesus did, isn't it? What did Jesus say? I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Putting God first. He wanted to say, the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Putting others second. And the Bible's full, just full, of admonitions to be humble and to avoid pride. In Romans 12, 3, Paul tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And Jesus said, he who exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. First trait, first character trait of living a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called is humility. Because doesn't a sense of our salvation and how it came humble us realizing we did nothing to earn it nothing to deserve it it's a fully a gift of God's grace and the first way you live your life to reflect the value of that salvation is by living in humility the second trait is gentleness now some of you may have in your translation the word meekness but I think gentleness is the better choice we so often confuse meekness with weakness. But that's just not the idea here at all. The, the idea here really of when, when, with the biblical word gentleness is power under control. You know, Moses is described as the meekest man in all the earth. But there was nothing weak about Moses. This gentleness is having a mild manner about yourself is having yourself under control. Not being vindictive. Taking revenge. Reacting out of character. This word in the Greek actually was used of wild animals that had been tamed and become gentle. Gentleness is having yourself under control. And living, of course, under the control of the Holy Spirit. How do you know you're living your life? Worthy of the calling with which you've been called is because you live a gentle life. Not a weak life, but a gentle life. Power under control. Then the next trait is patience. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, he said. Now, that's a little more personal, isn't it? It's one thing to ask us to be um, humble. Another thing to ask us to be gentle. But boy, isn't patience hard? Most of us want what we want when we want it. 
Waiting is hard, isn't it? Hmm? Isn't it hard to wait? But some of the great characters in the Bible learned valuable lessons because God forced them to wait. Abraham had to wait a long time between the time the promises were given to him and those promises were fulfilled. Noah had to wait a long time between when God told him to start building the ark and when it actually started to rain. David had to wait quite a while between the time he was actually uh, conferred uh, to be the king and when he actually became the king. Biblical patience is really a kind of endurance. It doesn't have so much to do with time, but rather the endurance of trials and difficulties and hardships and suffering. You know what happens when you uh, you pray for patience, don't you? A man came up to his preacher one day and grabbed him by the arm and said, Preacher, I need you to pray for patience for me. And the preacher said, well, I'd be glad to. In fact, I'll just pray right now. And he prayed, Lord, send this brother a trial. And the man grabbed his preacher's arm and said, I didn't, I didn't tell you to pray for a trial. I, I asked you to pray for patience. He said, don't you know what the Bible says in Romans 5, 3, that tribulation brings about patience. Many times the trials and the tribulations that God brings in our lives that we kind of scorn at, God has brought them to teach us important lessons. And we need to be patient and wait upon God's perfect will through that. And so a third way that you show that you're living your life in a way that's worthy of the calling with which you've been called is deal of a life of patience. And the next trait in our text is tolerance. At the end of verse 2, showing tolerance for one another in love. What does that mean? Well, it, means, it doesn't mean you put up with things you ought not to put up with. And we live in a kind of a tolerant society where we just can say, well, you know, anything goes. Whatever you think is right, that's okay. If, if it's what you want to do, that's not what the Bible is saying. What he is saying is that we endure suffering from others. We tolerate others in love. Even though we may sin, they may sin against us. You know, Peter tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we're told that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I think that's what Paul is getting at here when he talks about being tolerant of one another in love. Y'all have to tolerate me sometimes. You have to show tolerance with me because I'm not always what I ought to be or do what I ought to do. You have to tolerate each other sometimes because the same is true. Husbands and wives have to tolerate each other sometimes because... We all fail in what we ought to be and what we ought to do. And it's the love of Christ that enables us to do that. 
tolerance. And the love of Christ is another way we show that we're living our lives in a way that's worthy of the calling we've called. And there's one more. It's in verse 3. Where it says, being, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, that, that verse could be a, a sermon in itself. I'll avoid the temptation this morning. Let me point out just a few of the important words in this verse 3. One is diligent. It talks about being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Keeping unity in the body takes diligence. That is, it takes work. We have to work at it. Because there are so many hazards that get in the way. Unity in the body doesn't come naturally. Just like unity in a, in a family doesn't come naturally. I, I tell people in premarital counseling, two sinners coming into one home doesn't make a, a holy home. hundred sinners coming into church doesn't make a holy church. And therefore you got to work. you got to work at preserving the unity of the body. We're, we're so different, aren't we? So diverse. It's one of the things I love about North Point. We're so diverse from so many different places, so many different backgrounds. Folks, that brings hazards with it. And that's why we've got to keep working diligently to preserve the unity of the body and the bond of peace. The other important word I want to stress is that word unity. And it may be one of the most important words in the Bible that God uses in reference to the church. God is very, very concerned about the unity of the body of Christ. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, we saw this when we studied Proverbs on Wednesday nights some time ago. It lists seven things that God hates. One of the things that God hates is someone who spreads strife among brothers. Who spreads strife in the body of Christ. You know, there are all kinds of horror stories out there about churches that are full of unrest and, and strife and a lack of unity. Nothing displeases God any more than that. We need to make sure that we are being diligent, folks, working every day at preserving the unity of the body. And the other phrase is at the end, the bond of peace. I love that phrase. Bond of peace. When is it you feel the strongest? Isn't it when you are at peace? Peace with God? Peace with yourself? And peace with others? I know I feel the weakest when I'm not. When I know that, that I've done something to displease God, or when I know that I've done something to, to break a relationship with another person, or when I know that I have done something personally that displeases the Lord, doesn't measure up to the standards, I feel extremely weak. I have no bond, if you will. Bond of peace. Peace gives us strength. You know what image comes to my mind when I when I read the bond of peace? It's, it's believers kind of united together, arm to arm, bound together, 
a bond uniting us in Christ and giving us great strength together. We show that we're living a life worthy of the calling with which God has called us. When we're diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now obviously each one of those five traits is related to the other. But taking it together, again, they give us a descriptive picture, I think, of what it means for us to walk in, in this way, to, to, to live a worthy life. But you know what these five traits look the most like? They look the most like Jesus. As we live this worthy life, living more and more like the heart of Jesus himself. And so my question to you this morning is, what value? What value do you place on your salvation? And my other question would be, how does your life reflect that? How does your life reflect the sense of value that you place on the salvation God has given you in Christ? The two always go together. And the greater you see the blessing of the salvation God has given to you, the more diligent you'll be to live a life worthy of it. One that reflects the greatness of the salvation God has given to you and the salvation to which God has called you. God give us grace, each of us, to that end. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, these admonitions here based upon the salvation you've given to us. And I pray that each of us would this morning be able to reflect, to think upon our own lives in light of the salvation you've given to us and the value we place upon it. And we pray that individually and corporately we would all walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've given to us to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.